John C, everybody. Uh, John, take it away. You need to unmute, and I'm going to change some settings around. But yeah, pleasure to have you, sir. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for the invitation. It's a joy to be with each of you. And uh, uh, so, anyway, yeah, I did play handball in uh, Kilkenny about 15 years ago, along with uh, the villages. And uh, I, I had a funny story when I was in Ireland for a few weeks. And uh, I guess it's a uh, asking for directions in Ireland is a little bit of humor. So I was driving and I went around the ring road. And somehow I got lost. I didn't know how to get back to Kilkenny. And I pulled up along a farm road and uh, uh, there's a trailer there. And uh, I stopped and hoping to get directions. And I saw the, the shades of the trailer open up so they knew that I was outside in the car. And a man came out with, uh, with his T-shirt on and uh, he, he had been drinking. And uh, he leaned in my car and all I could do was smell booze on him. And he says, what can I do for you, boy? And I said, well, we're lost and uh, I'm trying to get back to Kilkenny. So he sucked in the deep air like that. He says, well, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> so we all broke out in laughter in the, in the car. We enjoyed the, the, the time we spent with that man. And it's a fond memory that I was in Ireland for so long. And I appreciated the company and the people. So my job uh, today is to share with you a little bit uh, what I was like, what happened, and what I like now, and uh, I'm happy to do so. To start with, I'd like to give you a little bit of a background. I just turned 76 years old a couple of days ago. I'm, <laughs> thank you. I am a single man and uh, I live alone, and sometimes my daughter or my granddaughter come to visit me, but that's the extent of that kind of thing. I uh, was so excited and enthusiastic about living today. I, about 15, 16 months ago, I decided to get certified as a mental health coach, not because of any genius, by the way, but because I had an emotional need. And I saw there was some unanswered questions I had about my ability to, to generate or monitor my thinking and my emotions. And what attracted me to that was uh, this evidence-based research has been done all around uh, how to generate uh, uh, regulated uh, my emotions and my my mental health. And uh, from that, I started a community called Freedom Hour and is dedicated to recovering addicts, whether they're still in their disease or they dropped the disease and now they're in their sobriety. And their recovery. And uh, I thought it was so important that I bring this message to people because we don't have to live in the patterns of thinking and feeling the way we have been while in our addiction and maybe sometimes afterwards. So that's what I'm doing now. As, as Mark said, I have written a book called Inner Peace. And it is uh, really a, a skill-oriented book rather than a spiritual book. It's, it has to do with uh, methods and and uh, ways of dealing with my emotional regulation and mental regulation. So that's what I'm doing right now. So let me just back up a bit. 
Um, at the age of 23, I come uh, to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, as you can tell, uh, uh, when I was 23, now I'm 76. I had a relapse way back in the beginning. After six months of sobriety, I went back out and drank again. And I come back when I was 25 years old, and I've been sober ever since. So I just celebrated, I will be celebrating 51 years next month. So it's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable when I think about when I first came here, I didn't intend to stay. I didn't, you know, I didn't, wasn't very hopeful that I could stay sober. Uh, because let's face it, I tried many times. This wasn't my first rodeo kind of thing that I tried to control the drinking and my drinking got worse. I tried to uh, drink certain drinks and I drank more. I tried to drink with certain people and not with others, and I still continue to get drunk. All of these control mechanisms that I was trying to put in place, I had no idea of this fundamental truth about powerlessness. I thought I had to control it. I had to manage it. And it never occurred to me that I should stop altogether, by the way. Uh, it, it was more about let's fight this head on. And there's something beautiful what uh, Dr. Silkworth and Doctor's Opinion said, that we were restless, irritable, and discontented. And I could really identify with that those three words because those words today mean that I was trying to control something I had no control over, the result of which was restlessness, irritability, and discontent. And when an addict feels those conditions, it's natural for him or her to reach out to have comfort and ease. And yet that only worked for so long. So I can tell you that I've been in three car accidents on one night, fights on the other nights. Uh, I can tell you I didn't show up for days and people wondered if I was alive or dead. I did all of those things. Uh, and it brought me to my knees. And I like to think that uh, in a moment of desperation, I uh, had some grace to reach out and make and have a phone call, and two fellows came up and twelve-stepped me, which I had no idea at the time that what was happening. You know, when you're young and naive, and you think that uh, you can handle the things in life, you're 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 overconfident, perhaps. Uh, I began to sense and see what was going on with me that I exhibited a little control in my life, not very much, both in my addiction and post-addiction. And I had to come to realize that, you know what, I'm not as powerful as I, what I thought I was. And that I had to learn something that is, to me, is, is, devast is just amazing uh, about how I arrived at this, this place of uh, belief. Because, you know, oftentimes we talk about God or something, people have strong opinions about it, and rightfully so. And uh, and I would argue those arguments as well. And who needs God? Uh, you know, who needs, I don't believe in God. And, you know, those kinds of, those, those, those conclusions I had. And yet here I was in, in a dilemma. I couldn't control or have the power to do something in my life. And I wouldn't allow a power into my life to help me and support me and nurture me uh, because I couldn't prove that there was a God. 
And one of the early distinctions I got was this, that we're asked to come to believe. And I interpret that as come to know. You see, I, 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 I was looking for proof. I had to know that if I'm going to believe in something, I had to know that it's true. And of course, there's no one on earth can can provide that proof, just like no one on earth can provide that it, there isn't a God. So what I have slowly turned to do is to turn myself around and start thinking about, well, belief is not knowing. As a matter of fact, belief is the opposite of knowing. Belief is, 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 is in a sense that you know what? I, I, there's something there that I cannot prove, yet if I believe in it, it's going to support me with power. And here's this is what my definition of power is. It is the cause of something. So I believe that my higher power is causing me to move forward. The debate was over for me that I was no longer needing to know. I was okay with the mystery of it being a possibility. And that I had to learn to believe that there's something existed beyond myself that could cause me to become a better person. So when I look back at that decision, I think, my God, this makes so much sense. Why would I resist the help? It's like, for me, just to put a metaphor into this, it's like me drowning in the ocean, someone throwing me a life preserver, I'm throwing it back and saying, I don't like the color. So you begin to see how irrational those decisions I made were, were, were hurting me and holding me back. All I needed to do was to grab on the life preserver. And all I had to do was begin to believe that there's something exists. I don't have to know it. I don't have to understand it. All I know that it was causing me to become a better human being. And then when I think about the things that progressed in AA, it was this way, that I had to make a decision. I wanted to make a decision to turn my white life over my will and my life over the care of God. And the word decision struck me as something extremely important. Now, this word to decide has been sanitized in our culture. We make decisions all day long. But the kind of decisions we make, we often change our minds. So there was no decision to begin with. And when you look at the word to, to decide, it comes from a strange family of words. Decide. Suicide. Homicide. Pesticide. Genocide. What it really means is that we kill off any other options. So I had to look at that word. Am I truly going to decide to kill off any other options other than turning my will and my life over to care of God? Now, that doesn't mean I'm perfect at this, and I'm still not today. I don't want to imply that. But what it does mean is when I detect that I've taken my will back, I return to the decision I made. That's as simple as that. Because I, I have cut myself off. I have killed off any other options in my life. And when you think about the word will, how often we use the word will, what happens is this. It's hard to really, it's so subjective. The will is so subjective because we, can't, we don't know the shape. We don't know the color. We don't know its weight. You can't go to the store and buy it. Uh, 
So what do you do? What, what, what is the will? And again, it's pointed to this word, and which the word, the definition that I like the most about will, it's about causing. There's something that's causing me to move forward in my life into a healthier, better self-relationship and relationships with other people. Causing. And I put it this way to you, friends. It is like the wind in my back. This higher power is like the wind in my back, moving me gently forward in my life. I have to do the work. Sometimes we get involved in this, what I call spiritual superstition today. We think that maybe God is going to do everything. We don't have to do anything. And it's just not true. There is a mystical dance that happens in, in the spiritual realm that I have a responsibility in the dance to be a partner. And uh, for me to forego that responsibility means that I'm not going to get very far in recovery. In other words, I have to be a person in action, however I perceive the action to be. You know, growing up the way I grew up, for whatever reasons, uh, I, I was able to blame other people for my my behaviors and my attitudes and my resistance and all the things that uh, I thought that were defined me as a as a man. And I seldom took responsibility for anything. It just wasn't in the picture for me. I I just thought that you know, my God, if that person didn't say that, I wouldn't have done that. Or if that person didn't fire me, I wouldn't have gotten out when got drunk. You know, it was all of this blaming world, this this irresponsible way of looking at life. And when I walked into step four, which was a new, brand new way of dealing with who I was, was to take responsibility for my own being. And oftentimes I hear people say, and I probably said it myself many times, I'm going to sweep my side of the street off. As if I'm a good judge of my side of the street, and I'm not. Because of my tendency, my bias towards blaming. So I had to take 100% responsibility for the way I acted, interacted, and reacted in this world. And that was a big pill to swallow for me. Because I didn't know how to do it. I wasn't used to doing it. And it took time to begin to see where I was responsible for the feelings and the thoughts I had and the behaviors in which I was exhibiting. But it was a revelation. It was, it was wonderful because I got to see myself for the first time. And the Buddhists have a, have a particular phrase I, I, love, I love using. They call it wiping the mirror. So you can imagine a mirror that is dirty. That is my dishonesty. And every time they sit down and evaluate who they're being or who they're, what their behaviors are, they're cleaning the mirror. They're just cleaning it. So the image that comes back is a little more clear than what it was before. This is what happens in step four. We clean the mirror. We wipe the mirror. We begin to see ourselves for who we are, not to the extreme or to exaggerate it, nor to minimize it. But to be in the realm of, of, uh, of truth, that we're estimating our behaviors and that we are now responsible for them. You know, 
AA, when we when I walked into AA, there's language that was going on here. It could have very much been Greek to me because I didn't understand the words that were being used like the big book, like higher power. These are words I never heard before in my life. So we speak our own language. It is our own way of communicating. And I had to learn the language. And this is where this big book really came in handy because I started to learn the language of recovery, the language of the heart, that there was hope for me. You know, I thought in my own mind, I would stay here for a few months, maybe a few weeks, and I would move on with my life. And here I am all these many years later, still participating in something that I truly believe in. Something that I can witness miracles. Seeing people who come in one week and are a mess and they're all over the place and hungry maybe. And then a few months later, the change, the physical change in them is just nothing less than miraculous. And I get excited every time I see that. I think, oh my God, this is wonderful. This is just absolutely wonderful. See, recovery takes us from isolation and brings us back to humanity. And in step five, what we do, we, we sit down after our step four. And what we do, we, 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 we talk to another human being. The secrets of our life are now exposed. There's no more hiding. There's no veil in front of me and another person. I no longer feel isolated. So I had to admit, isn't it interesting that I had to admit to myself first? I had to acknowledge what I had written. So as, as if it was clearer for me that I would realize who I was being and how I was behaving. And I had to admit to another person, I, I, uh, how difficult is that, especially when one is used to hiding? Hiding in shame and guilt for the things I did and said or didn't say or the things I didn't do. Shame and guilt prevailed in the way in which I operated. And this causes isolation. So in step five, what happened was I was able to step out of that closet, step out of that corner of the room and move into a grander room, a room of community, the room of people, that I was no better or no different or no less than anybody else in that room. That the secrets I kept, which I was so ashamed of, was something that everybody else was living with too. And this is the, the ironic thing. There is no reason not to be vulnerable and authentic in the rooms of, of recovery. Because people understand what it's like to live a life of secrecy. And they say, you know what? We're only as sick as our secrets. And coming out in the moment in step five, I rejoined the human race. And it was obvious to me because I felt so much better internally. It was, it was a transition that I experienced. And it was a wonderful, wonderful way to, to get into freedom. So I moved on with these 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 steps, and, uh, and step six and seven for me is all about acceptance, acceptance of who I am as a human being, 
It was not my job to obsess over my defects of character or try to fix them because that turns out to be a distraction for me and that I had to learn to accept that I'm an imperfect, perfect human being. That I have flaws. And do you know, this, and we know this anyway, this, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know at this moment. But somehow I, what my experience was was very different from what I knew. My experience was I would condemn and criticize myself for the mistakes I would make and come to a conclusion that I'm not good enough. Not even thinking that every human being on earth, both dead and alive, not one was perfect. Everyone has come through these doors of this world, have weaknesses, have shortcomings, character defects. So all I was was part of that human condition. It wasn't uniquely me. And I come to realize that. So what, what came out of that was this idea of self-acceptance. Self-acceptance, in a sense, uh, is a decision that I made. It isn't uh, a condition. In other words, I will be self-accepting when I get the bigger car, or I get the bigger house, or I get the bigger business or I have more money, or I'm going to wear custom uh, clothing, or, or go on exotic vacations. No, 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 no. It's none of those conditions. Self-accepting is the ability to accept myself as I am, both with my strengths and my weaknesses right now, today, in this moment. To be able to say to myself in the mirror, looking deeply in my eyes, that I am enough. I am enough. I don't lack for anything. I have abundance in which I call my sacred identity. Gifted, somehow gifted with the qualities and virtues to be able to have find purpose and meaning in my life. Well, that's a big difference than condemning and criticizing myself for every mistake that I ever made. That internal inner critic condemning me, ridiculing me, diminishing me as a human being. Now, it's really about self-acceptance. I accepted that I was imperfect, and I started to move on this journey of recovery. Now, we come up with another word of willingness here. Willingness seems to prevail in many of the steps. Willingness, the causing of. Am I willing to make amends to everybody? Is that the willingness exists? Am I going to cause that as much as I possibly can to make that list and to be willing to make those amends? Except this requires good judgment, by the way, which I wasn't, was it? I can never boast about being having good judgment, except when to do so would injure them or others. So here we are. And the answer to me was yes. I had to clear. I had to. I had to clean this up. I wanted to stop hiding from people, crossing the street, hoping that I would never see them again. I had to confront these fear. And I want to share with you a little bit about what developed in me was to is making amends to people. 
When I first started making amends, it was all about me. It was about me. It was about, oh, I wonder if they're going to accept my amends. What if they shut the door in my face? What if they tell me to go to hell? What, what if, what if uh, they look and snicker at me and push me or, or something to that effect? I was totally worried about self. I was doing it out of obligation because I was told to do it. But I didn't know how to go about doing it. And over the years, what I've come to learn is this, that I had to put my attention on the other person. That this, 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 this harm that I have caused them, I didn't really know how much I caused them, even though I presumed that I did. So I went to people and I started asking them questions. I, and I would start off by saying something, look, I believe that I've, I've harmed you in some way, but I'm not exactly sure how much or how deeply I harmed you. Would you mind telling me exactly where I harmed you? And they would respond. And I would listen. And sometimes I was very uncomfortable listening what I, what I did. And I wanted to explain it. I wanted to defend it. I wanted to place the blame on the other person. But I didn't. Recovery was happening to me in spite of my, my many distractions in life. The conversations that we're having in his recovery rooms were paying off. I listened without interrupting somebody, without correcting them. And I would repeat back to them so they would know that I know that I understood what they were saying. And I would say, grand. And I would make my amends. Either it was an, an amends of a policy, it was a crash register amends, I would make that. And I would do something additionally to that. I would stand there and make a declaration. That declaration is, if this was an ongoing relationship that I was pursuing, that I would let them know what they can count on me for moving forward. So the heart had changed. That I was no longer going to be that slippery, kind of shadowy kind of character uh, that was looking for the easy way out and wanted to get out of a sweaty situation with the least amount of harm to me. No, I distributed some courage. I also reached out of my comfort zone and explain to people what they can expect of me from moving forward. This was not me. This is not how I come to know me, by the way. I would do anything to get out of that uncomfortable and confrontational kinds of conversation. And yet, you know what? Every step forward that we make in recovery, we're better for it. Even though we may be uncomfortable, you see, if we're if we're if we want to remain comfortable, there's nothing there for us to learn. We're going to keep doing the same things over and over again, wondering why. It's only when we stretch ourselves and move from the comfort zone into a fear zone, and then into a learning zone, and then finally into a growth zone, that's when we transition. That's a transformation. We become something that we could have never imagined us becoming. But the responsibility is on us to stretch. Now, 
you folks don't know me, and I, I don't think I know anybody on this call. Uh, but I was, I was for the longest time, I was referred to as the God guy around my community. And what I did, I started a meditation meeting uh, because I believe so strongly that this communication, this conscious contact with God would be an eternal and deep healing for me. So I was got very interested in meditating. And uh, I, uh, and to be honest with you, one of the reasons why I started the group, because I wasn't meditating and I felt like a hypocrite, an imposter, if you like. I read lots of books on meditation, by the way. I could tell you how to meditate, but I didn't have the experience of meditation. So what I got was I started a group and we started meditating every week. And we did what we called 11th step every week. We didn't talk about it. We didn't read about it. We didn't do We actually did it. We sat around a circle uh, of people and we meditated for 10 minutes silently. And then we pray the three prayers, the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, the eleventh step prayer, as a community, as a group of people. Well, that started me on a journey, a journey of silence, a journey that opens up this vast territory of the spiritual realm. That I began to sense this advocate that I have, this, this higher power who's causing me to become a better human being, so that I could deliver on my sacred identity, my values, my purpose, my meaning in life, so I can be fulfilled completely. See, this is the only way one finds happiness, joyous, and freedom. It's the only way. When we are consistent with our values, not consistent with our defects of character. So this began a wonderful exploration oh, about 25 years ago. And I started a second meditation group. And uh, that's, what, that's what's happened to me in this prayer to meditation. I become aware of the presence of something wonderful, something beautiful, something loving and kind and gentle, something with empathy and compassion, so that I can externalize those experiences to other people so I can support and nurture them in a kinder, more gentler way than what I used to be. See, I used to think in my youth that the 2 by 4 AA was the way to go. Hit people over the head hard enough, they're going to pay attention. But I've changed all of that. It's not the same for me like that. People need to be heard. They need to be understood and validated. And no matter how sick one is, they have the dignity of being human. And I needed to respect their sacred identity, even though it may be inconsistent with what I believe. Now, every day, uh, I, I do a step 10. I do. And I've changed over the years. And I, I want to make this distinction with you because I think this is so vitally important. You know, I used to identify with my defects of character. In other words, I would say, I am selfish. I am afraid. I am, I am, I am. At the level of identity. So I was diminishing myself as a human being 
by using this verb, I am. I am. I don't do that anymore. What I say to myself is, I exhibited some selfish behaviors today. Why do I do that? Because my worthiness remains intact. Not, not anything to do with my performance. See, I am the observer of my experiences. I'm no longer in the storm. However, I am watching the storm. This small difference has made a big difference to me. I honor and respect the sacred identity that's been gifted to me as a human being. Then I may choose to use poor behaviors, but that's not who I am. You see, oftentimes we say, you know, we're we're not we're not stupid, we're sick. And I think that's true. We are sick people. See, addiction is a disease. It doesn't make us bad people. It doesn't make us small unless we allow it to make us small. We have a disease, the word have. We are not the disease, but we have a disease. And I am someone in behind the disease, standing and observing my experiences. So friends, this all brought about something that is called in the 12th step as a spiritual awakening. And Chamberlain wrote a book called The New Pair of Glasses. And I thought this is a perfect title for that book. That we begin to see things that we never saw before. And perhaps we saw it in gray tones, not in color. But working through these principles, these spiritual principles, we put on a new pair of glasses so we can see the color, the joy, the delight in living life. See, that's what the spiritual awakening is. We, we wake up. We wake up to who we are as human beings. Where we can find joy and peace and love and kindness. Now, not everywhere. Nothing is perfect. But we resort back to this experience of a new pair of glasses. And we remind ourselves through different tactics, like maybe experiential gratitude, how lucky we are. Now, no one knows all the numbers for sure, but we are a minority of people who are addicted. We are a minority that has today, at least, have recovered. And why us and not other people? None of us know for sure. Oh, we like to think we deserve it because we go to meetings or we talk to sponsors or we help other people. Yeah, that's why I'm sober. Well, nobody really knows. The thing is, we've been selected somehow to be able to manifest in this community, your community, and in the world that an addict doesn't have to stay addicted. That there can be freedom for that person. And we are the examples of that. You see, you can't dull or, or turn off the light that's shining. We are that beacon. Even though we may not feel like it at times, we are that beacon. 
And we need to know that our responsibility in demonstrating our recovery because people are watching us. They're looking for hope. They're looking for a way out. And they're looking towards us to guide and direct and support them on their journey of recovery. That is no small step for us. It's huge. I've been around long enough to know of many, many people who have died since I've been in the program. Many people. I remember a friend of mine who I approached early in my sobriety, who showed up drunk all the time at a hockey arena. He was my son's manager of a hockey team. And my heart went out to him because he was being ridiculed by the other parents. And I went over to him and I, and I said to him something like this. I said, you know, his name was Fred. Fred, I, uh, I don't know if you have a problem with alcohol or not. I could smell it. He would show up drunk all the time. But I softened it. I said, but I am an alcoholic. And if you ever want any help or you want at least to talk about it with me, just pick up the phone because I'd be happy to talk to you. See, I was compelled to do that. It's easier to walk by that guy and go with the other parents and ridicule. But because of my experience, I refused to do that because it wouldn't sit well with me because I know what that man was suffering. I know how he felt about himself. So the man ended up losing his job, losing his driver's license, uh, and he, uh, his family separated from him, and they found him hanging in the rafters. His children cut him down, still alive, but permanently blinded. And uh, he cut the AA with me then, as a blind man. And I pick him up, I take him, and everything seemed to be going okay. Then he found out that taxi services here in Canada will actually deliver booze. So he started drinking again. So these are the kinds of things that occur around us. This is not a unique story. Every one of us, I'm sure, can point to something similar to that. That we are gifted to be an agent of change for someone who is hopeless. And then it comes down to practicing principles. The action pieces. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step recovery is about action. And it depends how you define action. I've defined it differently today than I did many years ago. I thought action was going to a meeting. There's an action. I'm visibly going somewhere to get help. But as I got closer to this word of action and tied it to principles rather than a meeting, rather than reading a big book. What principles am I going to live by that I am prepared to practice? What values am I going to commit to? How am I going to become a holy person that thrives and flourishes in the light of my recovery? You see, this this is what happens sometimes to people who are addicted. They walk around the rest of their life like a bird with a bruised wing. They're not fully, completely whole. They blame their addiction on the way that things are in their lives. They've lost the matter of choice. They are a victim. 
a slave, a slave to what? To their thoughts and feelings and their behaviors and to circumstances. But for us who truly want to recover and are operating out of principles, we are not birds with bruised wings. We're birds that soar. We become effective. Which brings me to my what I'm doing today. Can you imagine at 75 years old starting a whole new business? You know, people my age, what they're doing, <laughs> they're, they're on the beach celebrating. My friends think I'm crazy. Uh, they've retired for 20, 25 years. And John, why are you still working? I said, well, I don't think I'm working. I have a mission. I have purpose. I get up in the morning, I'm enthusiastic, excited about what I can deliver. So I started this, this journey in the Freedom Hour community to teach people how to regulate their thinking and their feelings so that they can break open their limiting beliefs, their old patterns of behavior through evidence-based coaching. And I have to tell you something. I'm more enthusiastic and excited today than I ever have been in my whole life because it is consistent with my values. See, the 12-step recovery brought me to that point. I'm not the kind of guy that says, well, the big book is everything. I'm not. I have to confess to you. I, I, I'm not. I believe it is a beginning, not an end to anything. Wilson talked about this idea. It's the basic text of our society. We only know very little. More will reveal to ourselves. So I'm a believer in all their experiences collectively to expand ourselves of who we are. And we will not be happy until we're able to deliver what we're meant to deliver. And in this world, is so full of noise and distractions. We're confused. Many of us don't know what our values really are. We move on from one experience to another and no reflection. No step 10. We just move on from one experience to another, blaming the circumstances of our lives, blaming other people, wishing that things were different, and they're not. What we are the people, we are people who are up on our feet and are moving our feet rather than our heads. We're people of action. So I wrote a book. I, I wrote a few of them, actually. Uh, this one I've released is called Inner Peace, The Mechanics of Inner Peace. It's not spiritual. It's all skill-driven. I've, 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 I've written another one that's spir uh, spiritually centered, but this, this inner peace is not. And what it is, it provides ways in coping and being resilient in the way of living our lives. That we can have a matter of choice at our hands. That we not only feel what we're feeling, but not be dictated by our feelings. I've talked to a lot of people who recover, a lot. A lot of mature people who recover. And when I get them alone one-on-one, -on -one, I'll tell you, there's a lot of suffering. They may not show it in meetings because they think they have to keep a stiff upper lip. They have to think that, you know, they have to have it in control. But when you get them one-on-one, -on -one, it's a different story. 
there's still some self-hatred. They have an inner critic that condemns them, harshly condemns them. They have limiting beliefs about who they are that they don't even bother to try. They have feelings of fear and anxiety and upset and frustration in life, and they don't know quite what to do with it. So what do they do in their naivety? What they do is suppress it, avoid it, try to control it, which only makes matters worse. So I thought this book was important. And I hope, what I, what I really hope for is that people all over the world, people who are addicted uh, or have or are in recovery, will at least read this book because it gives them insight in another way of being. Now, I am not a I'm not an author by nature. Some people are very creative and write very well, and I recognize those people as a true talent. That's not me. Matter of fact, when I decided to write a book, the first thing that came up on my mind is the English teacher in my high school marking out my English papers, you know, uh, about punctuation, about uh, grammar and all that stuff. And the fear came up with me. But the fear didn't stay with me because I had something to do. See, fear, people want to get rid of their fears, but they won't get rid of fears. You know, the 600 million year old brain had fear. It is inherent of each of us that have fear. So by us trying to get rid of fear only creates conflict and upset with ourselves because we will be afraid at some point. So we retreat back to our comfort zone and to see to minimize our fears. But even there, we're afraid. See, we learn to be with the fear, not try to control it or force it, not thinking that there's something wrong with us. It's a human condition. And when you think about it, nature has provided fear for us. So you can imagine a caveman or a cave woman going out of the cave to hunt animals. And they come across a man-eating animal. And fear would stimulate them. The adrenaline would be in their legs and their arms so that they can fight harder and run faster. So it's a protection mechanism. And when we say we don't want to be afraid, what we're setting ourselves up for is disappointment. See, the trick here is to be with the fear, to embrace the fear, not to avoid it, to be okay with it, to recognize it for what it is. And as you kind of go through this, what you start saying to yourself is this, well, what, what are the facts here? What am I really afraid of? What are the facts? Then we come to the realization that it's temporary. It never stays with us long unless we engage with it. So we get used to the idea that it's temporary. Then we also get used to this idea that it's not just you that are afraid that every human being on earth experiences fear. Everybody. Whether they admit to it or not. Every human being on earth. So why shouldn't it be for you? And then we learn to shift our attention. You see, we shift our attention to something more empowering. And maybe we have a conversation with fear. You might say something like, I know who you are. 
you've come to visit me every so often, and I recognize who you are, and sometimes I used to listen to you, but today I'm not. You're not serving me today. And what I'm going to do is shift my attention to something that is empowering, something that keeps moving me forward, and I ignore it. And guess what? It gets starved. It leaves, sometimes in record times. So these are little strategies that are so important to the quality of our life, our well-being, and our purpose. I hope I haven't talked too long here. <laughs> so listen, I'm going to close off. Uh, thank you for your generous listening. I really appreciate uh, your attentiveness. And uh, Mark, thank you very much for inviting me to come over.